Listener Production. I've come around and I'm I'm going to be voting for The Voice mm. and us encouraging others to do so. It is going to be a big change in our constitution. It will change the power dynamic. So that is Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister, explaining how he changed his mind on the First Nations voice. Now, when it was first put forward in the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017, he was the Prime Minister and he rejected the voice alongside his deputy, Barnaby Joyce. So in this episode of The Briefing, we're going to ask him whether he takes responsibility for setting the voice back and why he actually changed his mind. Changing the constitution is really hard. And I mean, I know that because I've tried. You need a long run up. People need to get used to it. They need to understand it. That is Malcolm Turnbull, part two of our very interesting interview with the former Prime Minister. That's coming up in just a moment. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Tuesday, the 4th of April. Donald Trump is on his way to New York ahead of his court appearance over hush money paid to porn star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 election campaign. And we should soon find out what charges he's facing. This is solely about accountability. I should not be held accountable for Donald Trump's dirty deeds. That's Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, speaking to ABC America there. So Trump is expected to be fingerprinted and photographed at a Manhattan court later today. Yeah, it's going to be absolute chaos over the next 24 hours. There is uh, a lot of security on the ground in New York. It feels like the Trump chaos show is about Mm. to start, uh, along with his campaigning for president again. So the thing that shocked me about all of this, Antoinette, is he is the leading Republican candidate. And whatever happens with these charges, even a conviction, he can still campaign, even if he's behind bars. So just when you think Trump's story couldn't get any crazier, it does. And I can't help but notice Michael Cohen's change of language there. He says, um, I should not be held accountable for Donald Trump's dirty deeds. But earlier he'd said, you know, he'd take a bullet for Trump. So things, yeah, things are definitely shifting there. Well, he spent time in jail. That might have shifted a few things. And Australia will ban TikTok from all government devices following New Zealand, the US and UK. So the Prime Minister has reportedly signed off and there'll be an announcement very soon after a review by the Department of Home Affairs into security concerns surrounding the Chinese-owned app. So all politicians and public servants will not be allowed to have the app installed on their work phones, although they can have it on their private devices. Look, I'm pretty devo about this development, Tom, because that means I won't be able to see public servants dorky dancing at work to to Dua Lipa. But there is also some other big phone news. New South Wales is following the lead of other states um, and it's banning mobile phones in classrooms at public high schools from later this year. So that's the first major election policy to be implemented by new Premier Chris Minns. I don't want to see New South Wales kids fall further behind in educational attainment as a result of having a constantly pinging mobile phone device. So this new regulation will come into effect from term four and phones will be handed in before the first class and handed back at the end of the day. Yeah, really interesting. Sounds like a smart move to me. Um, Other states are already doing it. Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory. Um, you know, it's just so hard for teachers to keep the attention of, of people in the classroom. So, yeah, lock up the phones, let them use them after school. 
Look, and this ban is already in place across primary schools in the country. And Tom, I've got kids in primary schools and I can tell you that it doesn't actually necessarily eradicate phones. Kids find a way of getting them in or they have smart watches, which are harder to detect. And really, like, I've got so many views on this and, and research on the phone bans is divided. Like some studies say it does raise kids' academic performance by around 7%. And then another study found that, you know, kids, high school kids were so anxious about not having their phones so that their attention didn't increase increase because they were like wondering what's happening in the digital world and worrying about their phones. And then in China, there was research which showed that kids actually find a way of finding loopholes, kind of what I'm seeing at primary school. And I don't know, I I just think it's pretty crazy that the average age, like a study last year found the average age an Australian child gets a phone is seven and a half years old. And for context, at that age, they're learning to like add and subtract. So, I don't know, I reckon parents play a pretty big role here too. And the former principal of a Jewish Orthodox school, Malka Leifer, has been found guilty of sexually abusing two former students who were sisters. So this is a long-running story. The charges go back 20 years and involve a long extradition fight. So Malka Leifer left Australia for Israel in 2008 and after the charges were laid in 2014, there was a long fight for her extradition Uh, which finally ended when the former principal was brought home in 2021. So that's seven years after the charges were laid. She pleaded not guilty, but yesterday after six weeks of evidence and nine days of deliberation, the jury returned the guilty verdict on the abuse of two of the sisters. Today we can start to take that power back that she stole from us as children. That's one of the sisters, Dasi Ehrlich. Um, the sisters told jurors they were abused by Leifa on school camps, during private lessons at the school and also at Leifa's home. But Leifa was cleared of charges relating to a third sister and she awaits sentencing. And Vladimir Putin won't like this next story. Uh, Finland is set to join NATO. We will raise the Finnish flag for the first time here at the NATO headquarters. That was the NATO Secretary-General Jan Stoltenberg there. So Finland will become the 31st member of the world's biggest military alliance. NATO stands for the Northern Atlantic Treaty Organisation and involves 28 European countries along with the US and Canada. So this is a big shift for Finland. So they've abandoned their decades-long previous stand of military non-alignment to now be aligned with NATO after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, and it's not the only big change the Nordic country is facing. Um, Finland's 37-year-old PM, Sana Marin, has been voted out and she became the world's youngest female leader in 2019 when she was 34. And we're not usually fascinated by Finnish politics, but in 2022, there was that video that was leaked and it showed that you know she was out singing and dancing and partying and she had to come out and clarify that, no, she wasn't on drugs. Um, but anyway, she lost that election to a conservative leader. And tributes have been pouring in for Indigenous leader Yunu Pingu, who passed away aged 74. Not just an extraordinary leader of the Yunu people and Indigenous Australians, but all Australians. He is someone who was a confidant. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese there, who's remembering him as a national treasure. Uh, and Tom, you have a personal connection to Yunu Pingu. Yeah, this is a really sad and important moment, the passing of Unipingu. Um, yeah, he was friends with my dad. They were young blokes in the 70s, um, working together up in Arnhem Land and have stayed friends ever since. And I've actually been lucky enough to go and meet him. And he was one of the most 
impressive, intelligent, powerful people I've ever met. He was a, a giant of his Go March people, but a giant in the land rights movement as well. He was Australian of the Year in 1978. Um, he was involved in the struggle for land rights since the 60s. Um, mm. His father signed the Bark Petition, and then they fought um, the government in the Northern Territory land rights case because the government allowed a, a big mining company to start digging up their land without their permission, and they ended up bringing in land rights legislation and bringing royalties to their people. An incredible cultural giant um, as well started the Gama Festival, which prime ministers go to every year. And he was a big, passionate proponent of the First Nations voice as well. So tributes have been paid to him from all sides of politics. Um, he's, as Anthony Albanese just said, he's been consulted on Indigenous policy by prime ministers all the way back to Billy McMahon, so even beyond Gough Whitlam. Yeah, and I think that's what's really impressive, that his fight for land rights were absolutely tireless. As soon as he became an adult, until his death, he, he spoke to and presented to every prime minister. He's a giant who will be missed. There'll be singing and dancing, bungles going on for him every night up until um, the big ceremony for his passing, which will happen in a few weeks. All right, we'll catch you later, Antoinette. Katrina Blowers uh, is about to join me for part two of our chat with Malcolm Turnbull. He's got his own podcast. It's called Defending Democracy. And the release of that podcast was a great chance to talk to him about that and many other things, including his change of heart on The Voice. All right, part two of our interview with Malcolm Turnbull. As we discussed in yesterday's episode, he's got a podcast. It's called Defending Democracy, and we legitimately think it's a good podcast, yeah. which is part of the reason we're talking to him. But the other part of the reason, <laughs> Katrina, is to ask him some questions about some of his decisions. Yeah, so back in 2017, when he was asked about the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, he said it would never work. He, he had experience with trying to bring a referendum to the Australian people on making Australia a republic that, of mm. course, didn't get through. And perhaps as we are about to discover, in some way painted his point of view on whether a referendum on the Indigenous voice to parliament would work. In 2017, he said stuff like, no way, this is going to get shot down in flames. But now he's changed his mind. An assembly of the kind that is proposed would be, in effect, a third chamber of parliament. And I don't believe our parliament should have any chambers other than the two that it does, the House and the Senate, and they are open to all Australians. So let's talk about one of the biggest issues of the day, which is the First Nations voice to Parliament. We'll have the referendum later in the year. When you were PM, um, you said that this proposal would go down in flames. You rejected it. And that is part of the reason why it's happening six years after it was first proposed rather than much closer to the time when the Uluru Statement of the Heart was made. Now, if the vote on the voice fails... Will your rejection of the idea at the time as Prime Minister be partly to blame? No, not at all. I had two concerns. When I say I did, you know, the Cabinet did, right? I wasn't running a dictatorship. Our concerns were, firstly, we were uncomfortable with the idea of having any positions in the Australian constitution for which the qualification was anything other than Australian citizenship. So you could say that is a very basic, smaller Republican concern. Um, that's why I don't like the monarchy in Australia, because, you know, they're, they're not Australian citizens. You know, you, the, every position from the top to the, 
you know, the bottom, if you like, the only qualification should be Australian citizen. That's that's a point of view. You know, I've come around and I'm I'm going to be voting for the voice mm. and us encouraging others to do so. It is going to be a big change in our constitution. It will change the power dynamic, uh, but I think it is one we can live with and manage and it is because it is so heartfelt uh, an objective and aspiration of uh, Australian, you know, Indigenous Australians, First Nations people, if you want to use that term, it is, uh, it's one that we should support. But if you'd said um, this five now, or six years ago, we'd be having the referendum at well, that point and capturing well, the momentum oh, well, well, of your well, statement. Well, in that case, yeah, but Tom, I think in that case, you almost certainly would have lost, right? I mean, I think the these things take a while to get support. You know, the I mean, changing the constitution is really hard. And I mean, mm. I know that because I've tried. You need a long run up. People need to get used to it. They need to understand it. You know, even then, there will be people who will not understand this proposal who think they haven't got enough detail about what it involves and will vote no. Mm. And and you're not, they're not going to vote yes by being hectored. And, you know, one of the worst things that can be done is to suggest that anyone who votes no is racist. So everything you're saying now makes sense. But in 2017-18, you knocked the idea of this out of the park. Did you believe what you were saying then, or were you just trying to appease the right wing of your party? No, I absolutely believed what I was saying, and and I I, I didn't knock it out of the park. I mean, that Tom, that's just not right. I mean, that the, the all you, we you said, rejected it though, out of hand. No, we we said the government did not support it, but we established a committee to examine the concept of a you know a Aboriginal a Torres Strait Islander voice, and that committee you know did its work and ended up leading to the Karma Langton report that's been so influential. So I think the people were demanding that we express a view about, you know, yes or no, and we honestly gave our view then in 2017, but that doesn't mean that views don't change. So what's made you change yours? Well, what's made me change mine is two things. Firstly, you know, at the time it was a big shift. I mean, the, the whole recognition campaign had been based on different objectives, you know, quite different changes. So it 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 was a very dramatic shift. And what's happened in the intervening, you know, six years or so, five or six years, is that it's quite clear that this is the singular focus of Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people who are seeking constitutional recognition. So I think that's that, that that's one big factor. The second one is that it's clear that there is a real chance of it being successful. See, at the time, I mean, Shorten felt the same way, by the way. I mean, Bill ended up supporting it as opposition leader. But initially, when this was first raised at the uh, referendum, you know, uh, advisory council meeting, I remember we both thought this has got a snowball's chance in hell of getting up. I mean, you know, now you got to remember, I come from a, unlike all of the experts that you see in the media, I've actually run a referendum campaign. So, you know, one of the problems with politics is that most of the people who talk about it actually have never done it. So you were scarred uh, from 1999. You brought that to your position in 2017. You know, add to the mix a little bit of... um, your desire to appease to the right, you land on a position that now you've completely walked 
back on, but you're still saying you have no regrets about what you said at the time. No, well, no. I mean, you can't. What's the point? I mean, you that the the that was the views, the view the government expressed at the time was the view of the whole cabinet. I mean, it's mm. a but times change, and you know, people's opinions change, and I think the the voice will be a real change. Look, there there is a there is a little bit of a dissonance going on because you've got people on the one hand saying, "Oh, don't worry, this is just an advisory committee." Mm government and parliament don't have to take any notice of it. It's just, on the other hand, it is the purpose of it is to address what the Uluru Statement from the Heart describes as the trauma of powerlessness. And the so it is designed to be powerful and influential. And as Albo himself has said, the it would be a very brave government that on matters relating to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders elected to... Um, go against the advice from the voice you know it would be you know that that would be challenging i mean i'm not saying it couldn't happen but you'd have to have a very good argument very good reason for doing so yeah well that's where it's so will lie yeah exactly exactly and and you see but that's still power you know i mean mm. if you look at the constitution the governor general has the ability to not sign a bill into law the governor general has the ability to send a law off to the king for his consent, and the king sitting in London has the ability to annul an Australian law within 12 months of its enactment. Which okay? has never That's, happened, right? So no, which has never happened. Power. Yes, but it's it's there in the constitution. It's a legal power. Now, but you're absolutely right. It's inconceivable that it would have happened. So the voice will not have a legal power, mm. but it will have real political power. Yeah. So this is the point. There are some institutions that have legal rights and legal power, but in political reality could never exercise it. And you've got something like the voice that will not have the legal power to say, Parliament, don't pass that law, you can't pass that law, but it will have enormous influence. And so I think we've got to recognise that we are talking about creating a new and very influential and hence very powerful institution. Now, I, you know, I've come to the conclusion that while I have reservations about that because of the, you know, my republicanism, if you like, uh, nonetheless, it is something we can live with. And given it is such a heartfelt objective of people who have had such a rotten deal historically since European, uh, you know, invasion and, and settlement of this country, it's something that we should uh, we should go ahead with. So that's why I'm supporting it. So now you've got a taste for narrow casting. You've done your first six episodes of, of your very first podcast. What's next from you? Have you got a taste for it now? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I've really enjoyed it, Katrina. I'm going to do, we're going to do a couple more episodes on the Defending Democracy series and we'll, I'd like to do more. I think it's a, I think it's terrific. I mean, it's, it's a very, it is a very, very interesting medium. I, I think there's a, a lot of things that are coming back. I mean, my mum in the, you know, 40s and 50s used to write radio serials, mm. right? You know, the old mm. uh, Coral Lansbury is the name, and mm. she wrote lots of radio serials that she did. And you can see that type of drama, if you like, is coming back, but in the form of 
podcasts. I mean, a lot of the true crime series are the type of things that old-style radio used to run. So it's essentially, it is that um, linear programming, some of it news, Mm. some of it entertainment, you know, the whole mix. But the difference is that people can listen to it whenever they want to. Yeah, lineal oral storytelling, which has basically been the foundation for passing on knowledge for millions of years. True. Um, Mm. But now you can choose it on demand and including... Defending Democracy by Malcolm Turnbull, which if you're if you're kayaking right now is a great listen. We recommend you listen to it at, at normal speed at one X. Yes. As you as you kayak wherever you are yes. in Australia. Yes, paddle as fast as you like, but listen to the podcast at one X. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I, I genuinely enjoyed listening to every episode. My favourite, though, I think, was Theresa May. So, yeah, more of those, please. Rage a little black book of contacts. I genuinely enjoyed ribbing you about the MBN and, and the voice. <laughs> so thanks for your time, Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, that was Malcolm Turnbull. I always enjoy talking to him. I like, he. he's seemingly had a lot of time to reflect. He's, uh, he's kind of humble about you know, admitting that he didn't get everything right. I like that his voice is still being included in public debate. I, I like I liked this podcast very much. It surprised mm. me how much I liked it. And I look forward to hearing more from him. Mm. I think it's important to challenge him though. It's it's sort of easy <laughs> yeah. to agree with a Malcolm Turnbull. I think he is relatively sensible. Well he floods you with facts. And so that <laughs> sort of bamboozles to, you a little bit. It's difficult to pick apart. I had some yeah. extremely intense stouches with him back in the hack days. Um, this was more of a friendly chat, but I did enjoy just turning the screws on him a tiny bit there. <laughs> Keep doing it. Listener.